Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Dylan Etkin, CEO and co-founder of Sleuth, an engineering efficiency platform that's raised $25 million in funding. Dylan, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, thank you, too. I'm excited to be here and talk to your audience. Super excited for this as well. So to kick things off, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So as you said, my name is Dylan Etkin. I'm co-founder and CEO at Sleuth. As far as background goes, I spent uh, most of my time as an engineer originally, and then a lot of time as an engineering manager. I was fortunate enough to get involved in a small startup at 20 people called Atlassian. Some of you might be familiar. And, you know, that was a wild ride, which meant that uh, I got to learn a lot of things and do a lot of different things over the years inside of Atlassian, starting with working on Jira as a developer, one of the first three developers being the first architect on Jira for about a year, uh, running their Bitbucket product when they made that acquisition. Funny enough, left Atlassian, joined a small startup called Status Page. A year later, that was acquired by Atlassian. So, you know, difficult to escape the mothership. And then eventually striking out on my own and starting Sleuth with my two co-founders. So joining Atlassian in 2005, when did you just start to have an idea of like, wow, this is going to be a big company and this is going to be a, yeah, this is going to be a massive company. Like, did you know that in 2005 or did it take a few years for that to like really become crystal clear? I think it took a few years. You know, one thing that was true right at the start was they were successful even when I joined. So that was probably two or three years into their life cycle. And Jira was one of these things that just caught on like wildfire. So, you know, even when I joined and it was only 20 people, I mean, we had customers with the likes of like Morgan Stanley, and it was this like gorilla product that was just infiltrating the dev world. And I'm probably aging myself here, but it was also kind of hip at the time. You know, the way that I sort of encountered it was this uh, website that hosted a bunch of open source car called Codehouse and like all the cool Java projects were up on that. And so I was familiar with Jira and I think it was, uh, so there was this like sense that something very cool was happening, but. In terms of the juggernaut size of what the company was to become, I think it definitely took a little while for us to realize it was going to get there. Was that hard to leave? Because what was it in total? Like almost 15 years of your life was basically spent there. Was that hard to make that jump to go start your own thing? Or was it just the time and it felt like it was right? It was like working at seven different places. So, you know, like there was the 20 to 40 or 50. There was the 50 to 250. There was the next phase. Then, you know, for myself, I started in Sydney and then, you know, decided to move my family back to the U.S. And at that point, Atlassian had built a fairly large office in San Francisco and I moved over here and then I was like running Bitbucket, which was like a totally different beast. And then I did leave after about 10 years. And that was kind of that was hard, right? Because it was choosing to do something different and then getting brought big in, back in as during via an acquisition. It was one of these things that was just like, it felt like a TV show, um, you know, and it was a little easier to leave the second time around because I think I had just changed my perspective a little bit. And it, it was definitely more of a business than a family at that point. And I just had something that I was very passionate and excited to go off and do. As you made that shift from being an engineer to being 
founder and CEO, what was like the most challenging thing that you've encountered so far? And the reason I ask is a lot of founders listening in are probably in your exact same shoes. You know, they're engineers at Google or Facebook. They're thinking about starting their own thing. What was the biggest challenge you made or that you went through during that transition? Oh man, I think there's just so many. I don't know if there's a one word answer for that. It's certainly the visibility of the entire business, right? So as an engineer, you get to focus on a very specific set of things. You might even have the product side of things like, you know, uh, siphoned off, but like learning about like, you know, finding product market fit, like really like listening to the world about the product that you're trying to build while also worrying about engineering, understanding that marketing is real and that marketing is incredibly important understanding how sales works, even back office things like how the hell to pay people. Like that's part of why you do it, hopefully, is that you want to understand what a business as a whole means, but it's very different than, you know, siloing in in one thing. Makes a lot of sense. A few questions we'd like to ask, and and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one is what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Right. Yeah. So I was thinking about this and I'm going to go with something very close to home and personal. So John Kodamal, the CTO of LaunchDarkly, and Edith Harbaugh, the, the former CEO of LaunchDarkly, they are both close friends. They were early investors in, in Sleuth and like, you know, first customers of Sleuth and honestly have just been the most amazing resource in my personal life. You know, they have been open and free with their advice around like what they have done to get to success and have been amazing champions and supporters of our journey as well. I love the company that they built. It's dev tools oriented and I love the culture that they've built inside of their organization. And again, having had such personal interactions with them and having been the recipient of so much support, I have to choose them because I hope to pay it forward in the same way that they have with us. And I really admire them for that. I admire their outdoor media strategy. I feel like all over San Francisco when you're driving around, you see launch darkly billboards everywhere you go. Yeah, yeah. The fe- let your feature flags fly was a great campaign. Yeah, yeah I <laughs> yeah, see that every time I go to the office or I mean the airport. <laughs> yep. Now, what about books and the way we like to frame this? And we got this from an author named Brian Holiday, but he calls them quake books. So he defines a quake book as a book that like rocks you to your core. It just really influences how you think about life and how you approach life. Do any even quake books come to mind for you? You know, I'm I'm gonna again like go towards my startup experience here and say that the book accelerate was very, very impactful. Like I read that and, you know, I'd already had many, many ideas in that space and obviously had, you know, to the degree that we'd written some code and brought a product into existence around it. But I loved how articulate they were about the area. And then one of the authors from that, uh, Gene Kim, also wrote a fiction book called The Phoenix Project. And I liked that because I'm a bit of a fiction fan. I, I, I struggle through business books a little bit. And I loved that he kind of put some excitement and enthusiasm, but still told us the story of why continuous delivery could be really impactful and exciting and brought it back to manufacturing. And I read it and I thought, and that, yeah, all of my thoughts are so much more clear now around this area. And that can be the power of literature, you know? Mm-hmm. Two books I haven't heard of, but I will definitely have to check those out. That's the, uh, the joy of doing the podcast and asking these questions and yet not having people say the obvious ones. I always love learning about new books. So yeah, <laughs> cool. I, I changed my answer. Lean startup. <laughs> yeah. What else? Then we go back to the the first question about founders. You can just say Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos, and then we're good. Yeah. There you go. Sold. <laughs> Let's switch gears now. Let's dive a bit deeper into Sleuth and everything that you're doing there. And the way we like to start this is 
let's talk about the problem. So how do you articulate the problem that you solve? And then let's talk about how you solve that problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, really at the end of the day, we're helping teams understand how efficient their engineering organizations are, and we're providing them the tools in order to get better. So every engineering team I've ever worked with wants to do what they're doing in a more effective and more efficient way. That can often look like, you know, adding in process or adding in safety nets or you name it, right? And what we help people do is we help them understand where they're bottlenecking today. So where they should first turn to actually get better. And then we provide automated tools for them to do so. And let's expand on what that solution then looks like. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this is oriented around a thing called Dora metrics. If you are familiar with the state of DevOps reports, you know, they took a lot of DevOps practitioners and practices and boiled the ocean a little bit and, and came up with these four metrics, their frequency, lead time. In other words, how long it takes to get something from inception through to delivery, the failure rate. In other words, when you deliver something, you know, is it successfully delivered or unsuccessfully delivered? And then if it's unsuccessfully delivered, what the mean time to recovery would be. So how long it takes to get back into that successful state of play for your application. And so these Dora metrics have been very transformative in allowing us to talk about quantitative numbers around efficiency. And they talk about it at a team level. And so what we do is we hook up into systems like GitHub, Jira, PagerDuty, uh, maybe a Datadog or something. We into the real work that teams are doing every day, day after day, and we glean these Dora metrics from them. And that allows you to figure out where your hotspots and your bottlenecks might live. And then we have an automations marketplace and framework that allows you to kind of one click add these like best practices that engineering teams have developed over the last 15 years to help improve your overall engineering process. Simple, right? Simple. Take me back to October 2019, and that's what I see is like the, the origin date or when you started. Yeah. What were those early conversations like? And what was it about this problem specifically that made you say, yep, that's it. Leaving my job, I'm going to start a company and build a company around this and, and solve this problem. Why were you so attracted to this problem specifically? Yeah, you know, so for me, it goes even further back. Back when I was working on Bitbucket at Atlassian, you know, when I started running that team, I think there was like seven of us. By the time I finished, there was something like 40. And so initially I could kind of keep up with what we were doing. You know, I just watched some emails on pull requests and that was fine. And we didn't have incidents that often. I was like, things are generally okay. But as the team grew, you know, obviously we were practicing continuous delivery and it became harder and harder to understand what we were actually doing and whether it was working well or not. And it kind of struck me like a lightning bolt that deploy, which is this thing that at the time we treated almost like as a second class citizen was the most important thing. That was when all of this hard work that a developer had done and even like, you know, design had done, product had done to bring into life, hit customers, which is, you know, the moment when it actually matters. And we had very little information about that, you know, and, and understanding whether that was going well or going poorly. And so around the 2015 time, when I first left Atlassian, I started building this tool because I just thought, you know, I work at the Jira company and we're building Bitbucket, which is a premier source code hosting tool. Certainly I should be able to get access to some of this information. And so when I left, I just wanted to convince myself that maybe I could. I wrote a little bit of the beginnings of Sleuth at the time. It was called Deploy Hub. And then I got involved in this small startup. I kind of kept working on it. When I went back to Atlassian, they said I needed to shelve it. And so I gave the idea and the opportunity, a lot of opportunity to just die on the vine and it refused. 
every time I would talk to somebody about it, I'd get super animated and interested. And honestly, the market grew into the idea more and more. And so, you know, as I sort of started thinking about what I would do next, I just couldn't in good faith not do Sleuth, bring it into life. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Talk to us about those first paying customers. That's something that you know, every founder struggles with is getting those first paying logos across the line. What was that experience like for you and, and how'd you pull it off? Yeah, you know, I almost think that the way that we did it is a cautionary tale more than a, a positive thing. So, you know, some people go into stealth for a while. We just decided we were going to dev in the open. You know, that just tends to be one of our, our philosophies. And we were lucky enough to have a lot of folks in industry that we had known who were bought into the idea and the vision. And so they started paying us reasonably early. That was like LaunchDarkly and some folks at Easy Agile, the folks over at Atlassian. And the downside to that for us is we started with this thing that we were calling deployment tracking. And that was, it's still at the core of what we do, but it was not the value that organizations are looking for. And yet we had some people that were paying us and, and giving us a little bit of a false sense of having found our product market fit. When in reality, I think we were a little bit off the mark. And so it was great to have some paying customers, but it also perhaps gave us a little bit of false sense of security in the beginning. And where do you stand now in terms of growth, adoption? Are there any metrics and numbers that you can share? I mean, we're in a pretty competitive space. I don't tend to share too many metrics. I mean, we're growing, you know, I'd say we're about 3Xing most things. And, uh, you know, we're in a pretty happy place now. We definitely found some fit. And, you know, have a pretty good self-serve business going on and some really enterprise customers that I'm pretty excited about as well. And can you expand on what the competitive landscape looks like? You know, I think that engineering efficiency and measurement and is not new. There's been a number of false starts in our industry. You know, I like to joke that back in the punch card days, you know, if you had the least amount of punch cards, then you win. You know, probably not much of a good measure of things. Uh, lines of code have also been a traditionally terrible measurement you know, number of pull requests as well, but the door metrics have really allowed us to take the real information and glean some sense of uh, usefulness out of them. And so a market has grown up around that, you know, and so there are definitely folks in our space that are offering, you know, connecting up to all of your existing tools and glean these metrics. Maybe, you know, some are doing some this way or that way or a little bit differently. But uh, it's definitely a, a top of mind space for a lot of engineering leaders right now. What are you doing from a marketing perspective to rise above the noise and connect with engineering leaders? From other interviews I've had on the show, what founders have told me is that you know, engineers and engineering leaders are almost allergic to marketing and marketing to them can be very tough. So what are you doing mm -hmm. from a marketing perspective to really break through? You know, I mean, I think that that is correct that engineers are difficult to market to, but the good news is that we have an engineering background. I think that they react well to a certain amount of genuineness and they react to value, you know? So it's really about getting ourselves in positions where we can talk to the people that we know will get value from what we're building. And that looks like things like sponsoring the state of DevOps report. There's a conference that we're going to at the end of August, the ELC summit which a lot of great engineering leaders show up at. 
And it's just finding the places where our kind of customer profile is living and talking to them in a way that, you know, it comes across as genuine and useful. Can you talk to us about Sleuth TV? I was watching some of those videos as I was preparing for the interview and I, I like the approach and I really like the content. Awesome. Yeah. And you would have seen Don, my co-founder and CTO. And I think that's a perfect example to talk about what I was just saying there is Don is an architect at heart, you know, like he is the developer's developer. I've never really met anybody who is better at like, you know, breaking the back of a really hard problem in like, you know, three overnight sessions and whatever. And then handing it off to a team that needs to like, you know, spend another three months to really finish it off. But like he can sort of work at that high level. And, you know, so Don does a lot of the the marketing for us because he's also reasonably charismatic. You know, he, I think he was a, a preacher when he was younger and he kind of approaches things in that way. He's straight shooting and he knows what he's talking about and he's passionate about subjects. And so we just kind of have him out there, you know, talking about the things that matter to all of us in that very, again, genuine way. And I, I think it tends to resonate with the audience. From a messaging and positioning perspective, have you made any major changes in the past 12 months? And, and the reason I ask, a lot of the founders that I've talked to, they say that you know, the, the message that was hitting the market and resonating with the market 12 or maybe 24 months ago is completely different than the messaging and positioning that they have today. Has it been similar for you or has it stayed consistent for the last 12 months or so? No, it's changed. So it's made a reasonably big shift because of the economic situation of most organizations. But also one thing I would say is that being in a market that is nascent and currently evolving, our messaging and what resounds and what customers are looking for is evolving daily. And uh, it's an interesting challenge. And we have to continuously remind ourselves that, you know, what was really giving us traction 18 months ago may not be actually giving us traction today, you know, and that the the conversation has evolved and the competition has evolved and, you know, what is uh, the value that is required in order to adopt a solution like ours has evolved as well. When it comes to the market category, and maybe let's think about this like a line item, like is engineering efficiency the line item? And is that an established line item that an engineering leader would be looking for? Or, or what is that category or what is that line item? Yeah, it's evolving. I mean, what is a great search for us or, or has been traditionally, but I think is a little less so now is Dora metrics. So the folks who have read Accelerate or are big fans of the state of DevOps reports, you know, what will happen is somebody will say, I need to get a handle on what's going on here. And then they have this conversation perhaps of like, what should we track? And the kind of default standard now is this idea of Dora metrics. And so they'll search for Dora metrics and then they'll find what's in the world of possibility in that vicinity. Now, at the end of the day, the reason that they're looking for that is they do want to improve. You know, so like they want a tool that's going to give them a baseline, that's going to give them insights, that's going to allow them to improve. So efficiency is a, is a good way of thinking about it. Also business value, probably just understanding, you know, what is the value that my engineering organization is bringing to my business, I think is how a lot of people are looking at these capabilities. Makes a lot of sense. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised $25 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? Oh boy, I suppose you need to be really good at articulating your dream and why you are uniquely suited to realize that. A lot of fundraising is around a team and a dream. You know, you have a dream, you believe so hard that you're going to go ahead and make this thing happen. You know, a lot of the fundraising, you know, obviously, if you're just gangbusters and you've got like, you know, $20 million in ARR out of the gate, 
like, you know, that's going to be very convincing on its own. And if that's the case, you might not even need to do fundraising, you know, but if you are trying to get out ahead of things and really like get the capital that you need to realize your vision, it's about sharing that vision and doing it in such a exciting and articulate way that you get others excited. And then, you know, really leaning into yours and your co-founders pedigrees such that, you know, you're going to convince others that you're the right team to do it. Let's imagine that you are starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? Ooh, that's a good question. You know, drive to product market fit with relentless abandon. And if you have a friendly audience, maybe rely a little less on them because getting people to really, really, really tell you if you're hitting that value or not, is it's a hard thing to do. And there's a lot of strangely uncertainty around whether you're hitting it or not. And I guess the other thing I would say is that if you have any inkling whatsoever that you aren't hitting it, it's probably 10x more right than you think. <laughs> you know, I, I remember back in the day where us being like, you think we found like, maybe we found some product market fit. I don't know. What do you think? Whatever. The fact that we were asking that question at all, the answer was no. You know, but at the time you're like, but we have these seven customers that are whatever. And they said they liked it. And you're like, yeah, but they're just being nice. I think it was a talk I watched from the, yeah, the CEO of segment was talking about product market fit and his view was like, it doesn't feel good. It's like getting sucked into a vacuum. And like, you think that it's going to be this year, amazing moment, but there's a lot of pain typically when you do find product market fit. Was that your experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, I remember talking to the founders that launched Arkley and, and, you know, they were already probably a unicorn and them saying, oh, I don't know if I found product market fit. And I'm like, oh, whatever, man, you've totally found product market fit from my perspective. You know, so it's not like a, you're in and you're done. It's this constantly evolving thing. And so, yeah, it's, there's a lot of things that bang you around on the way in and way out. And, you know, then maybe you're transitioning from trying to find value to scaling value. Mm -hmm. Final question for you. Let's mm -hmm. zoom out three to five years into the future. What's that big picture vision that you're building? Right. I mean, the analogy I like a lot right now is Salesforce for engineering. And, you know, if I zoom that out one level deeper, the best sales teams back in the day before Salesforce were doing a lot of the things that Salesforce allows other teams to do, right? They were doing it in spreadsheets. They were calculating these things manually. They were generating reports and whatever reporting tool that they were using, they were, you know, generating email campaigns to like get back at people and, and make a difference to like, you know, their sales engagement and those sorts of things. But what Salesforce did was sort of say to everybody, this is how you do it. You don't have to be a top tier team in order to use these tools. Here are ways for yourself to evaluate how you're doing. Here are the tools that you have to improve. And, you know, here's the framework to have that conversation with execs and, you know, your leaders and, and other people in your organization. And engineering has been ripe for that transformation for quite some time. And, you know, it's folks like ourselves and, and our competitors that are building that now. Amazing. Love the vision. And I love your approach to building here. We are up on time, so we'll have to wrap. If there's any founder listening in that wants to just follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? I mean, sleuth.io is definitely the right place to go. We have a, a live demo. We sleuth and sleuth, you know, because we're dev developers at heart. And so if you want to see the value that we can add, you can just like watch us do our development along the way. And uh, obviously, if you want to talk to us, we're always happy to talk to you. Dylan, thank you so much for taking the time, especially on that end of day Friday. I appreciate it. <laughs> we did it. 
<laughs> this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Good talking to you, Brett. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 